company. Welcome to St. James. Good morning and welcome to all the people who are watching on the live stream as well. We're glad that you're with us. I just have one announcement. Look at the, uh, look at the bulletin and look, check out the notices on your own. But I got one announcement. There's two offering plates out there today. The one on the left is the normal tithes and offering offering plates. The one on the right is for a free will offering for Josiah and Catherine Lang. Josiah's got a summer mission coming up this summer. Catherine has her college mission. So please, uh, it's a free will offering. Generously give to that. We're just going to divide that between Josiah and Catherine. That's the offering plate on your right as you're going out after the service is over. All right, stand up with me, if you would, and let me open us in prayer, and then we'll get going. Father, you know how much we need you. You know how much, uh, you know where we're at, God, and you know how much comfort we need and how much hope we need, and we need you to give us faith, and it's not really possible for us to stir those things up in ourselves. So we're asking, Father, that as we meet with you this morning and we look at your word together, and we receive you at the rail, and we sing praises to you. Would you give yourself to us? Would you give us that hope and comfort and faith? We don't have it, and we desperately need it. And it's only you that can supply that. We're trusting in you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sins to God. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Amen. You may be seated. Treasures, 
Let's read Psalm 29 together. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Romans 6, 1 through 11 is the epistle reading that we usually read on the Sunday where we recognize and remember Jesus' baptism. It's all about baptism. It starts off with Paul answering the question, if I can set this up in a second. Paul's answering the question, if the more we sin, the more grace we get from Jesus, why not sin as much as you want to keep on getting more and more grace? And Paul basically says that's not the way relationships work. Uh, and also, your identity has been changed. You've been baptized into Christ, and that means your sets of values are now completely different. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke chapter 3. Glory to you, O Lord. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, remember that Herod had married his sister-in-law, divorced, uh, uh, forced his uh, brother-in-law, his brother to divorce his wife and married his sister-in-law. And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please stay standing for the sermon hymn. Shame 
نویسیدن going to read Esther 2 to us. Um, at the end of Esther 1, you'll remember uh, from last week, if you heard the reading last week, uh, Ahasuerus, uh, angry at his wife because she won't come when he demands, has made a law saying that she can no longer, uh, she can no longer be in his presence. He and his counselors come up with this plan where he's going to find uh, a new favorite woman, and Esther 2 is about that. Let me read it to us. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. and Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, that, that is, that she was a Jew. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shajgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. And now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, a flashback. Back when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both tanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so this is, Esther 2 is a bad chapter. There's lots of things in here uh, that are bad. Um, this is essentially sexual assault, right? The word custody is used a couple times here. She's basically held a prisoner to, serve, to sexually serve this king. Um, I, I didn't want to leave that unmentioned, but I, I don't, I'm not going to talk about Esther 2 today. We'll, we'll come back to Esther next week. We'll read Esther 3, and then we'll talk about Esther 2 and 3 together. 
But instead, if I can, I want to talk about John chapter 5. And if you can turn there with me, look at it in your phone or turn, turn in your Bible to John chapter 5. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 793. I want to talk about John 5, 23 or 24 through 30. And, 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 and I'll tell you why. And that's because um, most of you know about Mackenzie and what happened this week. And honestly, so I, I was preparing Esther 2 to talk about that. And I just, I, I wasn't bought into Esther 2 at that point. I just, my heart wasn't in it. And also, too, it would be tone deaf because with a family like ours, and as long as Mackenzie had been here with us, longer than almost everybody, except for a handful of people, she was the original youth group member, it would be tone deaf to not think about um, her at least a little bit. And her funeral's tomorrow, and I'm going to talk more ex- explicitly in the funeral sermon about that. But like, I've been really struggling, like you always do when somebody that you care about and somebody that's close to us uh, passes, like, how do you put these things together? Sometimes Christians use the word bittersweet, and, and bittersweet is really, I mean, it kind of gets there, but it's not, it's really not strong enough because it's worse than bitter, and it's better than sweet. And you're, you're holding these, these ideas in your head of uh, Mackenzie glorified and made perfect, which is the destiny of all of us in Jesus Christ, but, but also just the, 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 this, the, the horror and the brokenness of her not being here with us anymore and how those two things get together in our head. And I'm not going to say anything that I haven't really said to you guys before, but I did want to spend some time talking about resurrection because whenever, I, whenever somebody close to me, I lose somebody close to me. The thing that gives me the deepest amount of comfort, and it's the thing that the Bible offers up most frequently as the deepest comfort, is the promise of the future resurrection of the body. It always goes there. And so that's almost always where I go. And I just, this, this little tiny passage here in John chapter 5 is real sweet. And if you can give me just a few minutes, like I said, this was not my original sermon. This is, uh, uh, I don't have, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this morning, but I just want to hit you with some comfort from God's word and some promises about our reunification with Mackenzie someday. And um, then we'll have communion together. So if, you, if you're looking at verse 24, I'm going to read verses 24 through 30. Uh, G- this is Jesus talking, and he says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming. I want you to notice that phrase right there, a time is coming. We're going to see it again in a second. It's important. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Don't be amazed at this. For a time is coming, there's that line again, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, Jesus says, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Okay, there's two sections in this little tiny text that we read. There's two sections, and they're each marked by that phrase, a time is coming. And the two sections are organically related to each other. They go together, but they're talking about distinct things. And the first one is talking about the, the, first, little, the first three verses is talking about the, the first resurrection. And then the next verses is talking about the second resurrection. Let me show you what I mean here this morning. Verse 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So it's talking about the dead hearing God's voice, hearing Jesus' voice, the voice of the Son of God and living, but that time is now. See what he says there in verse 25. I tell you the truth, this time is coming and has now come. It's happening right now. Now, Jesus is talking to people who aren't dead, and he's saying that even right now, as I speak, the dead are coming to life. And this is what, uh, in the Bible, this is what sometimes John in uh, Revelation describes this as the first resurrection. You and I, outside of Jesus, are dead, we don't have any sort of like way to connect with God. Look, people can say, hey, be a better person. It, we're dead. We can't be better people. We can't, I mean, so I'm not saying that people can't improve in their life, but it's always at the expense of something else. You can become a better athlete, but it's at the expense of 
time spent with your kids or you can become a better worker, but it's the expense of time doing your hobbies. There's always trade-offs. You can lose weight, but you, know, you, you can't stop smoking. You can stop smoking, but you eat too much chocolate then. There's always trade-offs. We're kind of trapped in this cycle of serving ourselves. But when we hear the voice of Jesus, that's the key there, is it's the voice of Jesus, the voice of the Son of God. That's what makes us alive. That's what moves us from a status of being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. It's true for Mackenzie. It's true for lots of you. We've moved from death into life. And this happens in all kinds of different ways. It happens at all kinds of different ages. Some of you, you grew up in a church. You were baptized as babies. You, never, you can't even look back at your life and think, there was a time when I didn't really, I wasn't really connected to Jesus. It's kind of always been there. Some of you aren't that way. Some of you came to faith, maybe you grew up in church even, but you came to faith at an older age. And for those of you who came to faith at an older age, there's all different kinds of stories of how you did that. Some of you had like, some of you were like living horrible lives. One of Angela and I, one of our best friends, is a guy who became a Christian in his early 30s. And it just radically changed his life. He was, he's got all kinds of stories about drugs and strip clubs and stealing purses from people and all kinds of stupid stuff. And when he came to faith, it was this radical shift. And some people, it's different. than Some people have more of a, like a Martin Luther story where it's always been a good person in religion. Maybe you've been a faithful attender of church your whole life, but there's some point in your adult life when you're like, dang it, the gospel means I don't have to try anymore. The gospel means I'm free. Maybe that's how you came to faith. Some of you came to faith because you met somebody that you, maybe you fell in love with somebody and they were like, no, we're not, I'm not getting together with anybody who's not a Christian. And you're like, okay, well, I'll try this out. And that's why you're here today. Some of you, he's a group of friends in college or in high school that you, you sort of connect. I talked to a guy walking out this morning who's a, a freshman in college and uh, I've known him for a long time. Not that interested in Christianity, to be frank, when I knew him several years ago. But now he's like, I go to Bible study on Tuesdays and I'm trying to get my roommate, my college teammates and I, he plays soccer in college. We're all, we all go together. And so he's made these friends on his soccer team at college who are believers. And like, bam, that was it. I connect with these people. Maybe, it's, maybe for some of you, it's like an intellectual experience. You've got these deep questions and you've been searching and you met somebody or you read something or you saw something on YouTube or you came and you heard a sermon and you're like, you know what? This makes sense. Maybe it's an emotional experience. Uh, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Alan DeBotton, who's a, he writes about all different kinds of stuff. He's an atheist, but he writes about architecture and he talks about when he goes into sacred spaces, when he goes into like cathedrals, he's like, my, my atheism is definitely challenged. There's something in there that says there's more than what you think, Alan, in, in this world. And he hasn't, he hasn't become a Christian yet. But it's an emotional experience. And wherever you're at, they're all different, all different kinds of ways that you come to faith, all different kinds of ways that all of you connect with your faith. But the thing that unites them all is that the voice of Jesus has called you. Now, maybe you didn't think of it like that. Maybe you grew up in a tradition. Maybe you come from a church where, like, you were told, I have to decide to become a Christian. And you did. You decided to become a Christian. You asked Jesus in your heart. And it's always felt like that to you. What Jesus is saying is, if you look back to that event and you look back on the other side of that, it's actually Jesus calling you first. All of you who are believers in Jesus have heard the voice of Jesus and you've responded. This happens because Jesus has power. So let me look down with me at verse uh, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. What does this have to do with our salvation? The Father has life in himself. God created everything. The Bible teaches this. Um, your heart is beating right now, even though you're not making it beat because the Father, your Father in heaven is causing it to beat. The hearts of everybody, the hearts of every animal across the world. The grass is growing, crops are growing, trees are growing because God is willing it. He is the God of life and he makes life happen. And Jesus says, he's given that to me. He's granted the Son to have life in himself too. And so that means that Jesus is able to give life. And so when I call your name, if I say, hey, so-and-so, nothing happens except you hear, my, hear me call or you don't hear me call and you respond or you ignore me, whatever. When Jesus calls your name because he is a fountain of life, that life comes to you and trans, it moves you. So river crossing language in verse 24, you've crossed over from death to life. Jesus has called you, you've heard his voice, and now you are in the status of the living. You are 
those of us who are close to us, who have gone on before us, all the saints who have gone on before us, they are now in the status of the living. Whatever their state, you know, whether, whether biologically alive or biologically dead, we are all living in Jesus Christ because he is able to do that. Now look at verse 27. And he, the Father, has given Jesus authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. Because Jesus has life in himself, we'll talk about Son of Man some other time, Jesus has the right to judge who's in and who's out. Now the word judge sounds bad. Like if we think of like judgment. That's not what it means here. It means that Jesus, because Jesus is the author of life, it flows from him. He's the one who knows who's in and who's out. I was listening to a podcast um, recently, and it was a, basically it was an interview with uh, um, Martha, and I, her last name, Martha Ware, I think. She's a, she's a singer. She's an R&B singer. Uh, she sang kind of the, the tagline. She had to be a certain age to get this, I guess. But the, um, the song, uh, Everybody Dance Now by CNC Music Factory. If you know that song, you can hear that, th- those words in your head right now. She was hired by CNC Music Factory to sing that line. And she recorded it and sang it. And then it was gone. She's on tour one time in the early 1990s. And she's sitting in her hotel room and she's watching MTV. This is back when MTV showed music videos. And she sees this beautiful woman on screen dancing, and then all of a sudden, out of her mouth comes, everybody dance now, and it's her voice. She sees this woman singing in her voice. Well, she calls up the recording company, and they're like, no, that's not you, that's not you singing. She calls up CNC, her friends on CNC uh, Music Factory, and they say, no, that's not you, we hired somebody else. And she's like, no, that's my voice. Anyway, the tipping point of the story was she appeared on on Arsenio Hall. She kind of made a big stink about it. And there's this famous moment where she appears on Arsenio Hall and he says, well, if you sing it, sing that line for us. And she belts it out right then and the crowd erupts because it's clearly her. And she ends up getting lots of back dues and royalties for singing that song. But my point is this though, is like, who knows better who sings that song than the woman who sang it? Like she knows, that's her. Like if you have five paintings in a room and they're all paintings and they look exactly the same, one of them is a masterpiece, and the four others are very clever forgeries. Who would you call in to, to, to say which one is the real one? You would call in the artist herself, right? That's what you would do. That's all that Jesus is saying here. You're a Christian. Guaranteed. The artist himself who created your life looks at you and says, that's mine. That's my masterpiece. I made that one. Now, why is, why is this important? Because if it really is about your decision to follow Jesus or about your good theology that you subscribe to or this powerful experience you had where you like really like believed in Jesus and asked him, if it's really about that, that's all gonna come and go. Those things are good too, by the way. You should have experiences of Jesus. You should subscribe to good theology. You should decide to follow Jesus. But if that's what it's dependent upon, who knows where that's gonna be two weeks from now. Like I, I, I've been a pastor of a church and then I never thought that like six months from now, you won't even be going to church and you'll be denying Jesus. I never thought that. If my salvation is dependent upon my decision to follow Jesus, I have no clue where it's going to go. But if the master himself looks at me and says, that, that's one of my kids. I have passed from death to life. All right. That's the first resurrection. Mackenzie had that. You had that. Those of you who are in Christ. We are alive together. The second resurrection, though, deep comfort for me here. Verse 26, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming. Now, you notice here that he doesn't say, a time is coming and now is. He doesn't say, and now is. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. There's a time coming when a second resurrection is going to happen. When Jesus is going to return, and he's going to shout out, and all of us who are in our graves... Probably, who knows, I mean, the odds are historically that it's going to be all of us at some point. We're going to be in our graves. Jesus is going to shout out, and we're going to come up out of our graves to be with Jesus forever in perfect bodies. Now, this is the main teaching in the Bible. This is the main source of comfort. I, this morning, I have, and I know some of you do too, I have super deep comfort that Mackenzie right now is safe with Jesus in that she's perfect. I have deeper comfort that someday I will see Mackenzie again in the flesh, that I will be with her again. Now, all those things go together. It's not one versus the other. But what the Bible wants to do is it wants to point you towards this reality that God's destiny for you in Christ 
is perfect bodies someday. Perfect world someday. That's your destiny. Now, I'm going to drop a bunch of proof text on you, okay? It's all in the Old Testament. It's all in the New Testament. It's everywhere that that's God's plan for us. Job, famous text. Job is, Job's going through some hard times. Job has lost a child, t- 10 kids. Job has lost all his property. Here's Job's ultimate source of hope. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. Okay, you can't see God, right? God is a spirit. You can't see him. You can't touch him. You can't, uh, you know, he's, he's not here noticeable to our senses here in the room. But Job says, I know that he's alive and that he will stand on this earth. He's going to stand on this earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, after I'm buried and my body decomposes, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Well, how does that make sense? After my flesh is destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. You know why it makes sense? Because Job knows and believes that after his body decomposes, at some point, Jesus is going to come back, stand on the earth, and raise his body from the grave. That's his ultimate hope, is that someday I'm going to see my God face to face in the flesh, whom I shall see for myself, he says, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, Daniel says there's going to be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. At that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. This sounds like Jesus is borrowing on this in in John 5, right? And some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's the very last chapter of the book of Daniel. What is Daniel saying? What's the ultimate hope? Is that God is going to raise our bodies from the dead someday. God's going to raise us up from the dead. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel has this vision of this battlefield. And it's covered with dead bodies which have decomposed and it's just bones. And God says to him, I'm going to raise these up from the dead. Ezekiel says this, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. It's a promise, a solemn promise from the Creator God that he's going to raise our bodies from the dead someday and put us in our own land, and put us in our own land. Jumping to the New Testament, and there's probably a gazillion of them in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you two. If then, Paul says in Colossians 3, you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When Jesus returns, He's going to bring all of us back with him and raise our bodies from the dead. One more, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. On that first Easter 2,000 years ago, Jesus was raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, fallen asleep being an idiom for death in Greek. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have died. In other words, the first part of the harvest was Jesus. We will be the rest of the harvest in Jesus. When, when Jesus comes back, he's going to raise us from the dead. Because as by a man, Adam came death. By a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. The promise that God gives us in Scripture is, and going to heaven when you die is super important. The ultimate promise is the promise of future resurrection. They're all important, but that promise of future resurrection is the payout. Let me give you an example real quick. Let's say that, let's say that, uh, that you have a, a child who's, fighting in some great war somewhere in the armed services. And so, some, of you, there's, uh, some of you in here who have children who are in the, um, uh, in, in the armed forces, and so you know a little bit of what I'm talking about. But let's, let's say that you're living in, whatever, the ni- 1943, and your son is off fighting in Europe or in the South Pacific. And you're scared all the time. I, for those of you whose kids are in the military, you're scared all the time anyway. But now you know they're fighting in this great war. And let's say that near the end of the war, you get a letter from them, and it says... Hey, I'm fine. Just found out the war's over. Don't know when I'll be home, but I'm fine. You would be thrilled because you would know that your child is safe. There's something missing, though. There's a difference between that and the moment when they come home. Right? If, you, if you don't believe me, like you can just get on YouTube and like put in like military reunions. People who know their kids are safe, but when they see their kid after a long time, 
are just overjoyed. Why is that? Because knowing that your child is safe and then being with them in the flesh, that's a different level. It's good. It's better than not knowing. It's better than knowing they're not safe. Knowing they're safe is good, but being with them in the flesh is better. When our loved ones pass on and go to be with Jesus, we're like people who've gotten the letter saying, I'm safe, I'm good, don't worry about me. I will see you soon. I don't know when, but I'll see you soon. That's the position that we're in now with Mackenzie. We know that she's safe. We know that Jesus has her wrapped up in his arms. We want to be with her. In a certain sense, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are, but we're waiting for that day when we come home and she comes home and we're all together. And Jesus is promising he's going to do it. I promise I will do it. You shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. What I'm inviting you to do this morning is to find comfort in that, to believe and to know that God is going to reunite us all someday, that he's determined not to let sin and death win at all. Death, John Donne says at the end of his great poem um, um, about death, death, you will die. Jesus is going to kill death. He's going to kill evil. He's going to kill brokenness. And he's going to reunite all of us together. Stand with me and let's pray. Then we'll have communion with each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a good God and we thank you for loving us and we don't pretend to know what you're up to and we don't pretend that we even agree with you all the time. But God, we know that you're the one true God and we're begging you this morning to keep on loving us and keep on giving us comfort and hope. We thank you for being the God of life. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection. Make all things new. Come back quickly, God. Come back right now and make all things new. Lord, in your mercy. We pray for everyone, Father, who's struggling this morning with health issues and relationship issues and financial issues. We pray especially this morning, Father, that you would be with Mackenzie's family, that you would be with Mark and uh, Jill, that you would be with, um, uh, especially that you'd be with Bob and Majel that you'd be with Alex, especially, God, I, I want to pray, especially this morning, that you'd be with Bob and Majel as they not only grieve the loss of a granddaughter, but grapple with how to comfort Mark and Jill as well and serve them as best as possible. W will you give them special wisdom? Will you give them special strength and special hope? Father, will you allow all of us to be a conduit of your love uh, to them and that family? Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray that you would be with every uh, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, especially in Edwardsville and Glen Carbon, but all over the world. We pray that you would, we would see your kingdom grow. We pray that now, Father, as we here are worshiping with your saints all over the world, and Father, your saints who are in glory gathered right now around your throne, we pray that you would make all things new. We pray that you would grow your kingdom here, that we would see righteousness flourish. We pray that we see justice flourish. We pray that the name of your son Jesus would be glorified. All of us together, Father, the saints who have gone on before, including our dear Mackenzie, and us here now, we join together in praying this prayer. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Make all things new. Lord, in your mercy. We pray these things because we are your daughters and sons. And Father, we want hope and comfort for you, and we know that you're the only place to get it. You're the only one who has the words of life. Will you minister to us? Will you give us yourself? Will you wrap us up in your arms too? Will you give us hope and comfort in you? We're asking these things by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of your own Son, Jesus, amen. If you can, confess your faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. This is in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, his prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took up the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Just as I am.
May this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Go in peace.